All right, so we are talking about worship. Last week we talked about forms and expressions, looked at several different scriptures and kind of ran through them. Uh, I think we probably looked at, oh, maybe 20, 20, 25 passages of the Bible that shape our understanding of worship. And I hope you've been thinking about your two assignments that you were given last week. Do you even remember what they were? Nancy, do you remember what they were? What was? Okay, so you had to define it, and then you you have to reflect upon how you're going to grow as a worshiper, right? So that's kind of your your internal worship philosophy. How do you view worship? Kind of put that into into practice. So I want you to define it because I want you to have a good definition in your head as to what worship is. But I also want you to think about what this means for you. That's the idea, right? So it's, I want it to be in the mind, but also being demonstrated through, through your actions. And you don't have to have a real airtight, publishable definition, but we're going to get you to write something out, kind of work on it a little bit, and try to crystallize that, okay? So we're going to pray, and then we'll... We're going to talk about places of worship. So, Father, thank you so much for who you are, what you've done. We believe that you are loving and gracious and good, but you're also sovereign and holy and wrathful. And we approach you with both of those sets of ideas in mind. We approach you believing you're approachable, but we also approach you acknowledging that you are distinct and transcendent and different, so we're not, we're not trite, we're not haphazard in our approach to you. We want to honor you, but we also want to get close to you. And Father, tonight as we talk about worship, I'm sure many of us are sitting here thinking, yeah, we're kind of a little bit inadequate in that area, or we're harboring sin in our lives. We just take a moment to confess those to you, Lord. We stand before you as broken people. We, we mess up. We confess our sin. We ask that you would help us to honor you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Um, I don't know if it's me, Otto, but I feel a little bit of an echo coming back. So maybe you could find uh, Jay or text him or something and have him fix that. Because I don't want to lose my sanctification. <laughs> so, All right. So let's talk about... Places and times of worship. Some of you may have grown up being taught that there is a sacred space and secular space. Sacred space is where you worship. Secular space is left for everything else. In other words, there's buildings that are sacred. There's buildings that aren't. There's space that's sacred. There's space that isn't. And while it's true that at times we can dedicate space for sacred purposes, we actually are encouraged to worship the Lord all the time. You don't have to be in a church, in a cathedral, that kind of thing, to worship the Lord. Let's look at some passages. Let's start off in Exodus 33. Exodus 33 I've told you that one of the verses I just really am enjoying is verse 18. Please show me your glory. But let's look at verse 10. 
the Old Testament believers went through one, two, three formal places of worship. There was the tabernacle, which was basically... See that? I can see that echo. You better come quick or I'm going to lose it. <laughs> so we have the tabernacle. This is like a huge portable worship tent. And all of the ornamentation was deliberate and precise. Can you move your oh, sure, blame it on me. Oh, it's on my fault, yeah. Okay, there. And now what? I think he already took off. He did? Okay. This still echoing. So he might want to turn around and come back. Yeah. <laughs> I am his boss. So the tabernacle is like a giant portable tent. Then there's the temple. Well, we'll call it temple number one. And then there's temple number two. So temple number one was built by who? Solomon. Temple number two was built by Zerubbabel. is Herod's temple, right? So we call it Herod's temple, Solomon's temple. So the first temple gets wiped out by invaders. They build a second one. The second temple gets wiped out when, Glenn? How long did it survive? So the second temple then goes out when? So this is 6th century, and this one goes out 1st century A.D. Okay? So there's no more. That's just a little background. But here they're at the, temp the, uh, the temple phase, and um, well, this is actually like the tent of meeting. So that they used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp from the place of meeting. So Moses went out from the tent. This is verse 8. All the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. So this is the tent phase. And Moses entered the tent, and the cloud would descend and stand in the entrance of the tent, and, he would, it would, uh, and the Lord would speak to Moses. Now look at verse 10. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent... All the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. So, yeah, this is actually pre-tabernacle. So this is just Moses' tent. Now, people were worshiping the Lord at their tent door. They weren't in Moses' tent. They weren't in the tabernacle. They weren't in temple number one. They weren't in temple number two. They were worshiping the Lord from their tent doors. So this is one early example of people worshiping towards something, but they were worshiping in a place that wasn't dedicated as sacred space. 1 Samuel 1. So 1 Samuel 1 verse 19 This is not a uh, a reference to space, but this is a reference to time. First Samuel one nineteen. 
They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. So this is a reference to time. So here they're worshipping early in the morning, the beginning of the day. Let's look at some more examples. 2 Samuel 12, 2. We're basically surveying early references to worship as it relates to location or time of day. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. The context here is the death of David's child. David's child was conceived as a result of an adulterous relationship. And the child dies. In 2 Samuel 12, 20, David rose from the earth, so he'd been mourning, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. So this is the time of the kings, and David finds it appropriate to go into the temple itself to worship the Lord. Bear in mind, he lived in Jerusalem. Not everybody had access to the temple. That would have been impossible for everyone. Whenever you worship, you've got to be at the temple. No, that wouldn't have worked. Why wouldn't it have worked? Those people living 100 kilometers away. They didn't have cars. So it was actually rare. A small minority, a very small minority of the population could have worshipped on any sort of, a, even a weekly basis, at the temple. So they would make annual pilgrimages, but... Few of them had access to temples. Now, at this phase, just point of interest, at this phase, they weren't building synagogues yet. Synagogues really came, became really popular just a couple centuries before Christ. That's when synagogues became really popular after the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile. So synagogues were holy places scattered throughout the land where Jewish, Jews could congregate to worship, but they're not to be mistaken for the temple. And they were all over the place. But at this point, no. That's a, that's a, a, a post-exilic invention. I want to look at a couple more passages that talk about how people are worshiping in relationship to each other. So let's go to Psalm 102. And look at verse 22. Well, we could look at the whole context here. Let's go back to verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those that were doomed to die, that they might declare in Zion, that's another name for Jerusalem, the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise. So there's parallelism there. 
when peoples gathered together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. Now, notice kingdoms. When you're reading scripture, sometimes there is a now, but not quite yet, kind of a double fulfillment or double objective in mind. And this psalm is an example of that. The Jewish people were very mono-ethnic. They were God's chosen people. They understood there was a few Gentiles wandering around that knew the Lord, but primarily they thought of God's people as themselves. But here there's a reference to kingdoms. So there's, there's a little bit of a, shall we say, New Testament echo in this psalm. It's tipping the reader off to God's ultimate future plan to see more than one kingdom worshiping the Lord of Israel. And of course, we're well on the other side of that now as New Testament Christians. That's all happened in Christ and whatnot. But this is way before, a thousand years or so before. But notice that there's a reference here to corporate worship. The peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship God. We'll see this many times in the scripture and you're all part of church life, so this is not anything new to you, but there's some people that have this weird idea that worship is just an individual thing. And worship is both individual and corporate. Both testaments, even the eschatological visions of Revelation. What's it going to be like in the future? Lots of people worshiping God in eternity. Not everybody in their own cubicle dialing in direct, but everybody's worshiping God. So there's something special about corporate worship. And corporate worship, is cor- of course, is very powerful for many other reasons. We've talked about some of this stuff before in our church. I won't get into all that tonight. But there is a sense in which God's presence descends with greater authority. I want you to hear me clearly. Descends with greater authority when the church gathers than when we're by ourselves. And you can look at, for instance, Matthew 18, where it talks about church discipline. Okay, let's go to Second Chronicles 29, 28. How many of you, re- how many of you ever read Second Chronicles? Show of hands. Anything about it you found to be odd? Have you ever read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles? How many of you read them all? Anything odd about First and Second Chronicles? Yeah, it does. Why does it repeat itself, Nathan? Do you know why? I don't know. Anybody know why besides Glenn? <laughs> Okay, good. So if you, that's good, Jack. So if you were putting the books of the Bible in the order of time when they were written, you would put First Chronicles almost at the end of the Old Testament because it was written after the exile. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, which were eventually, which were originally just two big scrolls. I think some of the really, really old, old 
English Bible translations, if I remember correctly, you might even call them first, second, third, and fourth kings. But first second Chronicles was written after the exile. So these people go away for 70 years, they're kind of clueless to their history. The chronicler, whoever that was, rewrites their history for them. Obviously, we're, we're not dealing with printing presses. So very few people would have had access to first and second Samuel for Sec Kings. So the chronicler is rewriting the history from a post-exilic perspective. So that's why you get the repetition. But because we put it earlier in, in the way we organize the English Bible, it, it's kind of like, why, why am I reading all this again? So it's because it, it happens later. By the way, just another little thing. With the exception of New Testament books, so New Testament books, first and second, first, second, third, those are all individual letters. But the reason why we have first and seconds in the Old Testament is because scrolls were too long. So they divided them in half. So first Second Chronicles was one scroll, they cut it in half. First Second Samuel, one scroll, cut it in half. First Second Kings, one scroll, cut it in half. Just too long. So imagine, you know on Sundays, hey, find your way in your Bible. Imagine me taking the scroll, right? Clear the aisles. <laughs> Roll this thing out. Okay, Steve, way back there, 25 feet back, I want you to read the 25th chapter, right? And there wasn't even any chapter marks. That would have been pretty hard. So they cut them in half and made them into two books. Like measurement marks, like 30 feet down. Yeah, <laughs> 16 feet down, two inches back. Okay, yeah, read right there. All right, All right. so Second Chronicles 29-28. The temple is being restored here. And... The whole assembly worshipped. What did they do? The singers sang. The trumpeters sounded. And all this continued until the burnt offering was finished, which would have been longer than 70 or 90 minutes. Okay. We have very short attention spans. Oh, it's such, he's preaching so long. Read Ezra. Morning till evening, and the people stood the whole time. So the whole assembly worshipped, the singer sang, the trumpeter sounded, so there was music and musical instrumentation in Old Testament worshipped, worship. and this continued until the burnt offering was, so the whole assembly, so there's this idea of corporate worship here coming up time and time again in the New Testament. Let's go to Isaiah, Isaiah 27, 13. Isaiah 27, 13. Now put your finger there and then uh, put another finger in John 4, 21. Okay, let's look at Isaiah first. So Isaiah 27, verse 13. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are lost in the land of Assyria, and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. A couple things. The northern kingdom had been 
Isaiah is written around the 7th century. And the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity in 722. The southern kingdom went in 586. So when Isaiah is writing, some of the people have been exiled already. And they have never returned to this day. So the Jews, we now call them Jews, because it sounds like Judah, that returned to the land in the 6th century, 500s, were primarily people from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. The other 10 tribes, as a whole, as a whole, have never come back to the land even yet, wherever they might be however they might be mixed into other groups. So clearly this is futuristic. And later, a lot of them went to uh, Egypt, later after this. So even at the time of Christ, there was large Jewish contingents in Alexandria, Egypt, and places like that. So this is messianic, or sorry, futuristic, eschatological in orientation. And they will come and worship the Lord on the Holy Mount at Jerusalem. So again, there's this sense of worshiping before the Lord at Jerusalem and the Holy Hill. Now let's go to, this is interesting. You're going to find this interesting. John 4, 21. Okay, what's the context of John 4? Just look, look at it for a minute. Who's Jesus talking to? Sorry? Okay. Okay. Why is that significant? Who cares? She's a Samaritan. Why do we need to know that? The Jews and Samaritan weren't exactly, uh, the Samaritan weren't, weren't like. Right. Because they were from a mix. Uh, <coughs> right. So when the Assyrians came in and took people out in the 7th, that would have been the 8th century, so 722, they left a few people behind, a few Jews behind few Israelites behind. But then they imported various groups of people from other nations they'd conquered. Why do they do that? Why do they drop them off in northern Israel? They conquered the territory. They didn't want to come back 20 years later, and it's all jungle. So they drop them off basic Basic care of the land, you know, keep the lions out. Keep the wolves out. Just kind of take care of it. So you got all these different people groups. What kind of religions would be represented? A whole bunch of them. And so religious girl A, who's a good Jew, meets religious boy B, who's maybe worshiping who knows what, they fall in love. You fast forward seven centuries, and what do you have? You have a mixture of Jew and Gentile, a new ethnicity, worshiping Yahweh God, but there's a lot of pollution, spiritual pollution, and deviation from truth in there. So it's interesting. When the Jews came back, the southern nation, they kind of treated the Samaritans worse than regular Gentiles because they, were, they represented not just flat-out sin, but they represented compromise. 
So for Jesus, as a rabbi who is all into purity, to be hanging out with a Samaritan who's also a woman, think about the view of women back then, this is a really strange event. So anyway, they're having a conversation about uh, worship. And she has this idea that they worship on this mountain, and Jesus, as a Jew, that we worship on this mountain. Well, what does Jesus say in John 4, 21? Yeah, so look at he says here. He says, um, Woman, the hour is coming when neither this mountain, that's her mountain, Mount Gerizim, I believe, nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you know we worship, or what you don't know we worship, what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's coming, and it's now here. Why does he say that? His ministry is not yet completed. But it's moving in that direction to the point he's looking for people now. So I want to ask you this question. Why would Isaiah, in Isaiah 27, predict that a time will come in the distant future? Like the Escot, the, even the future from the perspective of now when people return to worship in Zion, but at the same time, Jesus says 20 centuries ago, I'm actually not all that interested in you worshiping in Jerusalem. You guys tracking with me? So, 7th century, okay, let's do this little line here. This is the distant future. This is the cross, and let's say we're here now. I mean, I don't know how long this line is. It could be really short. It could be long. So 7th century, he predicts in the distant future they're going to worship at Zion. But Jesus, he's kind of, put a little negative there and a plus there. Jesus is like looking for something different. Any thoughts? Glenn? <laughs> Just a little louder. Yeah. One could be as the literal millennium of Christ and the believers ruled in Jerusalem. Right. Or it could be the new earth and the new Jerusalem and mankind. Yeah. So the idea the idea here is that not, not all Christians believe this. Okay? See, it's not like if you don't believe this to be true and you have a different view of the end times, you can't come here anymore. But you just have to sit in the back row. Um, <laughs> we would see that God has a special place in his heart and even in the future for Jews. So while from the time of Christ to the second coming, he's not all that concerned about you worshiping in Jerusalem. He's looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth in order to fulfill some of his very earthly, tangible promises to the Jewish people, one of which is keeping this particular mountain holy, that chances are there will be a point in the distant future after the church has gone to be with the Lord 
when there will be an outpouring of God's favor and attention upon the Jewish people, they will return from various places and worship at that physical site. Some other events will take place before the end of all things. The world is wiped out and it's no longer an issue, period. So that's just kind of an interesting thing in terms of our view of the future and our eschatology. Uh, so I'm, I'm bringing that out just because I found that to be interesting. But for our purposes tonight, we can just make a note of the fact that from the perspective of the old covenant worshiper, there was opportunities to worship in various locations, but there was something special about Jerusalem. It was the sharp point of God's manifest presence. There was something special about going there and worshiping in the temple. And that was ingrained in the Jewish mindset. That's why so many of the Jews would make the pilgrimage, kind of like Muslims like to make the pilgrimage to Mecca. I mean, Muslims can worship in mosques all over the world, but they want to make that pilgrimage to Mecca. Jews wanted to make that pilgrimage on a regular basis to Jerusalem so that they could worship in an extra special place where God's manifest presence could be seen. And so we have uh, Zechariah chapter 4 giving us a little more detail on that. Zechariah 14, I should say. Zechariah 14, verses 16 and 17. You guys all there? Zechariah 14, second last book of the Old Testament. When everyone who survives all of the nations that have come against... You guys okay? Are you good, Kenny? Okay. Then everyone who survives all of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, of, worship the, king the Lord of hosts, uh, there will be no rain on them. So the idea here is it was, it was required to make the pilgrimage at least once per year to worship in Jerusalem. And aside from the spiritual benefits of this, you can understand the way that this would bind together these people in terms of their religious observances. So it's like if you're part of an extended denomination or fellowship of churches. To have those times when you're all together once in a while is kind of special. It kind of binds you together. It kind of keeps you thinking along the same lines, rebuilds those relationships, allows for fellowship. That's, that's the idea that was going on in, uh, in Israel at the time as well. So annually you would go to Jerusalem. Now let's, get in, let's look at a couple of passages in the New Testament. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2, which you probably expected. Acts chapter 2 talks about uh, the church very early on. The church had just, just been birthed, really. And in Acts 2.46, we have some insight into... The, the, the way they worshipped, so that's like 42, 43, 44, 45. And then verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, 
They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, the they doesn't necessarily mean that every single person without exception was at the temple and worshiping in their homes every single day. But as a group, there were members of the early church that were doing that. They were engaged in worship on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. So there wasn't, while they set aside the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Resurrection Day, for, for a corporate worship, they also understood that the whole of the week was an opportunity to worship the Lord. And that kind of feeds into our teaching here. We say to people, hey, we come together for corporate worship at least once a week. But we don't want you just to sort of put your worship hat on the hook at home for six days and then just worship the Lord one day. The pattern, the pattern of the early church was regular meetings, regular meetings, getting together, attending the temple, breaking bread in their homes. We encourage this in our small groups, by the way. Our small group leaders have been released and qualified and equipped by our church leadership to break bread. So if small groups want to celebrate the Lord's Supper together or communion together, there doesn't need to be a guy present with a robe on. We're totally fine, and we encourage small groups to do that. If you want to celebrate the Lord's Supper with your small group every single day, you're welcome to do that. So that's just a little bit of an insight there into early church worship. And then I'll give you one more, Revelation 4. Would you agree with me that what is happening in heaven now is somewhat instructive on how we should be functioning now? Sound make sense? So heaven, what's happening in heaven now, what we see, if we were to, if we were to be able to open a portal and look into heaven and see how God is being worshipped, do you think we might be able to gain a little bit that would affect the way we worship here? Of course we would. And I think that those that think our worship is a little too passionate or too exuberant might be a little surprised at heaven. And those that are a little trite and uh, maybe not particularly thoughtful in their approach to worship might also be surprised at how filled with awe and reverence and holiness people were or uh, the beings are in heaven who are worshiping God even in the here and now. So there's that balance between reverence and passion. So look at the whole chapter here, Revelation 4. <coughs> After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So here's the portal. The door opens. John's having a vision and he sees into heaven. What does he see in heaven? Little angels with blonde hair. Plucking on harps, sitting on clouds, with very large heads, and eyes that proportionate to ours would be like three feet apart, right? Precious moments. Okay. okay. No, he doesn't see that. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. So the voice, just a couple observations, sounds like a trumpet. Kind of interesting. 
said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, so he's, it's a spiritual vision. He's not claiming it's a physical state. There's a throne in heaven. There's one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance. Notice how he can't even put it into words. I don't know what, it's hard to explain. But he had the appearance like or of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So this very colorful vision kind of looked like precious stones. And around the throne there were, uh, were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were the 24 elders. And clothed in white, they were clothed in white garments with golden crowns in their heads from the throne came flashes of lightning. So the throne, it's not just some beings sitting there smiling. Out of this throne that looks like various precious stones, there's lightning flashes and rumblings and peals of thunder and seven torches that are burning, which are the seven spirits of God, metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So it's just interesting the kind of language that's used here. And you don't want to, by the way, when you're talking to someone in the foyer on Sunday and she made a comment that she's interested in reading Revelation, but it's really hard. Revelation is not hard. It's not hard to read at all. It's very easy. But you have to read it with the right eyes. If you read it, trying to figure out seven, what does number seven mean? Torches, what do they represent? The seven spirits of God. I want to know what... The, you're not reading it right. R- read it in broad strokes. Look for the impressions. Okay, we can get a broad impression of the glory and majesty of God. We don't need to cross every T and dot every I. That's the purpose of it. So the problem with the church today is we like to overinterpret Revelation because it's really cool. It's not the way it would have been read historically. You read it for the broad impressions. A brand new Christian can read Revelation and understand it, hands down. As soon as they start to overinterpret, then you get yourself in a quagmire. But you read it for the, just visualize it and let the, what you're supposed to be visualizing leave the impression on your heart that is supposed to be left without trying to figure out every single detail and what every single being is. Who are the 24 elders? On and on and creating a new denomination out of it. <laughs> That's where it becomes an unreadable book. So it's not a difficult book. I just want to release you from any thought that it is. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes. And who are the four living creatures? doesn't matter. There's four living creatures there. Full of eyes in front and behind. What does that mean? They could see everything. And then there's a creature like a lion. Who's the lion? doesn't matter. It's a lion. Looks like a lion. <coughs> like an ox, like the face of a man. Now, I've studied all this out in detail. Okay? And there's cross-references you can make to Daniel and all that kind of stuff. And you can, you can kind of go a little deeper in the text, but you don't need to worry about that right now. Just look for the overall impression. The four living creatures, each of them had six wings. They're full of eyes, front and behind. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures 
give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, which is how often? Ceaselessly. The 24 elders fall down. So how often are they falling down? Ceaselessly. Before the one who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So, a couple thoughts about this view of heaven. And we're going to underspeak here because our language is so limited. It's awesome. It's glorious. It is incredible. It is reverential. It is ceaseless. It is God-honoring. It's all focused on the one who's on the throne who is even difficult to describe in human terms and language. So isn't that kind of cool? just elevates our view of God. And when you get him up about as high as you can go, elevates him even more. And it's ceaseless. And I, I, I just, it's interesting that, you know, we've, we've all had times in, I hope we've all had times in worship services where we have this kind of mind-numbing encounter with God and it's like, wow, this is like the best it's ever been. But that pales in comparison to visions like this. And one of the reasons why it pales <coughs> is because this is ceaseless. Ours ceases. And it's back to the humdrum of life. And I'm sure we've all in our humanness had those moments where we think to ourselves, yeah, I want to go to heaven, but first I'd like to dot, 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 get married. Have kids, have grandkids, grow old, retire, go on a vacation to Zimbabwe, whatever. Um, and all of that is so kindergarten compared to what God has in store for us in heaven. So it's just this really exalted, beautiful picture of heaven. And we are, in a sense, getting a foretaste of that, a little appetizer of that in our worship experience. But there's more to come, which is pretty awesome. So while our human worship can at times be dry and boring because of us, not in heaven. So just a couple things then. Uh, you can write these down in your places times. The times don't matter that much. It's supposed to be ceaseless. Places. Places are important, but not super important. So when we worship the Lord... What we're really aiming for is a lifestyle of worship in all places, ideally at all times, all with a Godward focus, all with a Godward focus, focused on God. And dare I say that it is important for us to have some conversation about forms and about locations, and about space considerations, and about time, and about suitable chairs and instrumentation. We're creatures of a physical world. So we've got we to gotta think about those things. I have to think about them. Our worship leaders have to think about them. Our facility manager has to think about them. We think about these things, but let's never allow 
those things to be more on our hearts and minds than the main thing, which is the worship of God. So those of you, whenever you talk to me about worship or you talk to someone about worship, if it's always about, oh, the service was too short or too long or the music was too loud or not loud enough or the sermon was too short or too long, or all the, the, that's all the footnotes. It doesn't matter that much, people. It doesn't matter that much. The manifest presence of God is what really matters. The honor and adoration of God is what really, really, really matters. And the longer you've been worshiping this way, the harder it's going to be for you to worship this way. But just be thinking about it. You know, you, you want to have that vertical, heavenward, open the door, see the portal, look into heaven. You want to kind of move yourself in that direction and have that, we call it, unashamed adoration of God, where your eyes are just transfixed on the Lord. So um, here's some prerequisites to worship. This is heading number three. We're going to look at some passages. What are we at for time? I'll move through these a little quicker. But these are probably more important than what we just looked at in terms of time and places. So we're going to go to Ezra. Here's some prerequisites to worship. So, can anybody worship? Don't say yes. Okay, I'm just kind of not thinking here. I'm flipping back and forth, so I need to put some. Okay, Ezra. Let's find Ezra. Ezra, Nehemiah. Okay, there we go. Ezra 6. Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, were one book originally. Okay, Ezra 6, 19 to 22. <clears throat> On the 14th day of the first month, the return to exiles kept, kept the Passover. For the priests and Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread for seven days, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So there's this idea here of purification. The details largely relate to old covenant matters. But the, uh, the idea of preparing oneself for worship comes through here loud and clear. And what does the preparation for worship involve? What are they doing to prepare themselves for worship? Becoming clean. Pardon me? Becoming clean. Becoming clean. So how would we put that in uh, kind of concrete language in our context? What does it mean to become clean? Got to take a shower? Okay, we confess our sins to the Lord. So when we approach the Lord in worship... We want to make sure we come with clean hands and a pure heart. 
And obviously, all of life is worship. But when we set aside those times, we're worshiping the Lord. We've dedicated time now specifically to worship the Lord. We want to make sure that we are confessing, bringing to the Lord any sins or impurities that are in our lives. And that means more than just saying, oh, I'm sorry for doing that. That also means casting it off, walking away from it. It's not, well, I'm going I'm to confess my sin and then worship for a couple hours, and then I'm going to go back to it. And the next time I'm scheduled for worship, I'm going to confess it. You, you're supposed to walk away from that stuff. So the idea of approaching the Lord with a pure heart. There's, a, there's an instance in Daniel where Daniel is worshiping the Lord and he takes time to purify himself in order to prepare his heart for worship of the true and living God. So we separate ourselves from impurity. So uh, prerequisite number one, we separate ourselves from impurity. By the way, just by means of a point of application, I live in the same world that you do, and I am busy like you are, and I, and I totally get how life works. The service starts at 8.30, so we show up at like 8.30, or we show up at 8.25. Or the service starts at 10, so we're there at 9.55 because we've got to wait for the parking lot to empty out or what. I, I get it. So we're not legislating this or making you feel bad. But I would just say if you really want to get the most out of worship, come a little early and be in the room before the worship service starts and just spend a few moments in prayer just kind of preparing your heart for it. problem is you, you get into the habit of showing up late or just when it starts and you're still thinking about the drive-in, and if you have kids, you drop the kids off, or you're saying hi to some people, or you're trying to get coffee, and on and on and on. And uh, we're not going to police this in our church. They don't have time for that, no energy to do that. But coming a little early and preparing your heart for worship might be something you, you should consider doing. It'll just kind of help you to get more out of it, rather than kind of rushing in and it's like five songs in before you're even thinking about where you are and what you're doing. And I, I know some people do this in our church. They're, they're always there early. I think of like Bob Luckbaker. He's always there early. He's at the back. He's in the room. Uh, Jeff Hoskins, always there early. He's in the room. He's, he's getting ready. Never late. He's there s quite a bit early. And we have that pre-service song too, which is kind of a deliberate attempt. We start about three to five minutes before the service to kind of orient people. It's just really good. It's just a way of putting, putting this into practice. If there's sin in your life, you don't have to wait till the communion is served. Deal with that right off the top. And then you're ready to go. You're ready to enter in. You're ready to engage uh, from the beginning. When our worship team, by the way, is preparing to meet, we encourage elders, worship artists, the pastor. We're backstage. We're praying. We don't just get it over at the 8.30 service. We do it again before the 10. We do it again before the 11.30 because we just take really seriously what we're doing and we don't want to go in and show off or have unconfessed sin in our lives. We just want God to use us in spite of us. So we do that as worship leaders. We, we encourage the greeters to do that, the children's ministry to do that. So those of you that are coming and not serving in one of those areas, it's just a really good idea for you to come and prepare your hearts and deal with, uh, uh, you know, un unconfessed sin. So just, you know, I, I'll just say, like, I remember when we had uh, an 11 o'clock service, and some people would always show up late. 
just can't get here. Always late for the 11 o'clock service. Then you bump it ahead to 11.30. They're always late still. So it has nothing to do with the time. It has to do with the time you leave the house. Because if you used to get there at 11.15 and we had it at 11, but now you're getting there at 11.45, we started at 11.30, it's on you. So just be thinking of that. Get up early on Sunday. I'm usually up around 6 o'clock on Sundays and um, uh, leave the house around 7 so I can get here and prepare. I'm already prepared. Sermon's written, but I don't want to waltz in you know, five minutes before the service starts. I, I want to be here early. I want to kind of review things, kind of get my mind focused, and get ready to go. It's really good. Now let's look at Psalm 66. Verse 4. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, how great is your power, and your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and, the, and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. This is amazing because this is an old covenant believer saying this. All the earth. Literally all the earth was not worshiping God. And all the earth is still not worshiping God. So here we have one of the critical elements of true worship. Hope and anticipation. We worship with a sense of hope and anticipation that all the world will come. That all the world will see. Yeah, we know there's an eschatological dimension to this. But we worship with that sense of hope and universality that all the world will come to know the Lord. We can go to Psalm 89 or 86, verse 9. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. This is not... All the nations are going to go to hell and they're eventually going to find out that you're the one true living God. There's a sense of anticipation. They're all going to actually be redeemed. <clears throat> Not every single person without distinction, but people from all nations. I'll just give you a couple more. You can look them up for yourself. Isaiah 66, 23. Revelation 15, 4. The idea here that one of the notions we bring to worship is this hope, this anticipation that all the world will or should Worship the true and living God. So, to use a very basic term, we worship optimistically. We worship with hope. We worship with anticipation. So we separate ourselves from impurity, and we worship with a sense of hope and optimism, optimism that God is still alive and well. So our worship is not, well, it's just us here today. I guess we're the faithful few, and nobody else loves the Lord, and it's just our tiny little church. That's not the kind of attitude we want to bring into a worship service. Not a critical, pessimistic, God's kind of lost the battle kind of an idea. No, we worship with a sense of joy and optimism, optimism and hope that uh, God is going to redeem people from all tribes and tongues and nations. And these psalmists and the writer of Isaiah, of course, are making mention of this well before Jesus' declarations in the gospel, which we are all very much aware of. 
that God loves the world. And then John chapter 4, verse 24, we've mentioned this a couple times. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So when we come to church and we worship, there has to be truth. Believed, declared, proclaimed. Has to be truth. But there also has to be spirit. There has to be spirituality. There has to be an acknowledgement that some things are hard to explain. There has to be an attitude of a contrite and broken spirit and a joy-filled spirit. So properly understood worship is not just, let's get it right, let's make sure we're telling a lot of truth. It's more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. So if you come from a background where worship is just about truth-telling, that one's going to stretch you a little bit. And then John chapter 9, give you a couple passages And what these passages really are teaching us is that obedience is also tied to worship. So John chapter 9, verse 31. (coughs) We know that God does not listen to sinners But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. One of the most thoughtless things that is often stated by believers is that God hears everyone's prayers. No, he does not. Never encourage an unbeliever to pray unless they're praying for their salvation. Because that prayer goes about as high as the drop ceiling and drops back down. But we have this very elastic view of prayer. Oh, everybody can pray. and it's, encur- it's encouraging just to kind of teach people to pray. And it's great to pray and all that kind of stuff. In fact, when your children get old enough to even comprehend this kind of thing, you should teach this to them. Okay, we're going to teach you the forms of prayer But what you need to understand is until you trust in Jesus, God is actually not listening to your prayer. You need to tell him that early on. Oh, isn't it cute? Little Billy's praying. He's three. But little Billy is still a reprobate. And little Billy has not trusted in Jesus Christ. But it's it's cute to see Billy pray, isn't it? That's not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is not to teach little Billy to repeat poetry or to pray prayers that go up to the the uh, stucco ceiling in his bedroom and drop back down to the floor. Little Billy needs to understand that if he doesn't trust in Jesus, God's not listening to his prayer, right? So we need to be careful about that. And then we have here in this text that even for those of us that know the Lord, if we're living in sin and we're not being obedient to God, God is not listening to our prayer. Now, when we say listening, obviously God is aware of it. God knows everything. It's not like he can't literally hear it. But listening in the sense of fellowship. Okay, he hears everything. But listening in the truest sense, if you want to pray, which is part of worship, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, what does that mean? That's obedience. God listens to him. So if you're feeling... God's not listening to me. 
Maybe it's because there's unconfessed sin in your life. Does that need to be repeated? I think the passage is pretty clear. So when we come into worship and we're praying and we're making declarations to the Lord, we want to hear from the Lord, we need to kind of do a little evaluation. Is there anything in my life that's blocking, that's hindering my relationship with the Lord? And deal with that stuff. Again, coming early kind of helps, but even early in the morning when you get up. So we have obedience being tied to worship. So really what we're stressing here with some of these passages is that worship doesn't start at 8.30 or 10 or 11.30. We need to prepare ourselves for worship. And that's more than putting on the three-piece suit. There's a heart preparation that needs to be part of our uh, worship preparation. Let's look at Acts 24.14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, that's just like an early term for Christianity. It's kind of cool, but don't take it too far and start your own denomination. <coughs> it's been done. Okay, there's a cult called the Way. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So here we have worship, Next phrase, believing everything laid down in the law. The idea of obedience there is tied to worship. He's worshiping, he's obedient. He's worshiping, he believes. So worship is tied, especially in John 19, maybe a little more loosely in Acts 24, obedience is tied to worship. And let's go to Romans chapter 12. <coughs> Adam, I think you mentioned this after class last week. <coughs> John 4.24, God is spirit, worship God in spirit and in truth. So worship has a spiritual dimension to it, a spiritual dimension. And the end of verse 1, Romans 12 says, which is your spiritual worship? So if you just read that, you'd be like, oh, I, w- I want to know what comes before. What is spiritual worship? you want to worship spiritually, Christian? Do you, you want that as part of your life? Okay. So anybody else want it? So what's spiritual worship? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. They would have been familiar with offering a sheep or an ox or something, a dead sacrifice. But present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. So what does that look like? like okay, well, I like it, but I'm, I'm a concrete thinker. So what does it mean for me to offer my body as a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. Look at verse 2. It means do not be conformed to this world. It means be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It means that by testing you may discern the will of God which is perfect, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, it means I conform myself to Jesus, his words, his actions, his priorities. I don't conform to the old, the way of the world, as the Bible calls it, and I renew my mind. 
I think about that which is true. I put aside that which is dirty and foul and blasphemous and that which is untrue. Lies. Purification, which happens by exposing my mind to truth. Everybody that sins, everybody that sins, that sin starts in the form of a lie. You cannot sin without having some sort of a mind problem. People go, oh, it starts in the heart. No, it doesn't. It starts in the mind. The heart follows the mind. If the mind is blank, the mind is thoughtless, the mind is ignorant, the mind has accepted lies about self or God or scripture or whatever category of Christian living you're talking about, the heart follows the mind. And then the sin happens. So whenever you sin... This is, a, this is a key that will help you to unlock a pretty big door in your spiritual life. Whenever you sin, if you can track the sin back to the lie or the lack of truth or the ignorance in your life, and you fix that first, you renew your mind, the heart will eventually follow suit. If you believe certain things to be true, the heart will adapt to that. So we transform our minds and then we can test and discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is, we come, we come to worship, and we're like, Lord, I am a feeble being. My body is weak. My mind is flawed. I want you to transform me. That's the attitude we bring. I want to hear truth. I want to believe that truth to be true. Most of us know more truth than we actually believe. When I mean believe, I mean believe. So we know a lot, but knowing something to be true and believing it in a biblical sense is not the same thing. So you don't just fill people's minds with more truth. Fill it with truth and you ask, are you believing that to be true? And it's amazing how many little lies are in our minds about God and self and others that infect so much of what we do. And it takes a lifetime just to start to understand some of that stuff, but never give up. So that's, uh, hopefully that's helpful for you. This is why, by the way, in counseling or spiritual formation, you can't fix people just by changing their disciplines. And you can't fix people just by encouraging their heart. They have to experience truth. And that truth, when it is understood and then believed, will be used faithfully by God to accomplish the purposes of God in your life and bring about transformation. One more thought. Some of the things we teach people about the Bible are true, but they're not relevant. So it's possible to look at the Bible and look for things that are true about the Bible, but they're not relevant, directly at least, to spiritual transformation. So um, when we talk about, let's say, the history of the Bible, okay, great. That's, that's like a piece of information that's important to get maybe a better understanding of the text, but really what you need is a better understanding of the text in order for transformation to take place. A lot of Christian scholars minor in the footnotes of life. Their whole ministry or teaching career is about things that don't directly matter to the heart of the Christian life. So you've got to teach some of that, but that's just all 
you got to take people into the core. Who is Jesus? What has he accomplished? What has he done? Who is God? Who are you? What is the nature of history past, history present, God's plan for you in the future? Those core things, the heart of the, the Bible. And that's why I mean, I'll just use the example of Revelation. A lot of people, all they want to know is all the nitty-gritty details about who the Antichrist is and what country he's coming from. And all, they, that, they literally, they spend their careers focusing on that kind of ridiculous stuff. Like hours and hours and hours. Oh, the European Union is this, or it's Obama, or it was Gorbachev, and the birthmark in his head means this and that. And this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It accomplishes a grand total of nothing. But it'll get you a following, and you can write books and publish books because everybody wants to know all the details because they're bored with the core. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. You're very bored with the core because you haven't let it transform you really yet. You're always looking for like a new angle, a new little bit of truth you've never thought about before that probably doesn't matter. So the, the, the old, old story is what matters. The heart of the gospel is what matters. That's what will transform you and continue to transform you. I've never been transformed because I drew some conclusion about some political reality that's tied to Revelation or Jews returning to Israel. That doesn't transform me. The heart of the gospel is what continues to transform me many years into my walk with the Lord. All right, so let's go to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. So we have verses 26. Paul was speaking. So this is what's called this. Well, really the whole Bible is. They're situational books. So they arise from situations that are taking place in the world. In this case, it was in the Corinthian church, the, the, the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. What then, brothers? That's kind of like the modern equivalent of saying, what's up with you guys? When you come together, each one has a hymn. Now, don't think of a hymn as something written in the 1850s, okay? It's just a spiritual song. A lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, meaning a language, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you may all learn and all be encouraged and the spirit of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As, is, as in all the churches uh, of the saints. So this, is, this next one's interesting because he's very clear this is not... He doesn't say this about head coverings and that kind of thing, but he does say it about this issue. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, meaning to teach, but they should be in submission, as the law also says. So it's like, as it also says. So this is not just relevant to the new covenant. If there is anyone they, des 
Anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? That's sarcasm. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now there's like eight sermons in that. Okay, and I preached this in the church. I'm not going to re-preach it to you tonight. If you weren't here, oh well. Okay, it'll teach you for missing church. Um, we want you to feel bad when you didn't show up. Okay, that's kind of our 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 tactic. But uh, what I want to I'm just kidding, sort of, <laughs> sort of. Um, for, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So we talk about orderly worship. Okay, but let me, let me just say this. Uh, orderly worship is not necessarily the same as well-ordered worship. And further, uh, orderly worship is not the same as well-ordered, high-style worship. Now, the reason why I'm s saying that is because I know a little bit, I happen to be uniquely born at a time in history where there's been massive tran transitions in worship style and worship orders. And... Like in my 44 years, I've gone from no instruments, suit and tie, white shirt required, to what we have today, and the whole lot of stuff in between. And some people go for generations, and it's always the same. But I, I happen to be born during a time when I've seen huge, all the worship wars that have been fought, right? So I've, I've heard people use this verse over and over and over again to try to nail down an older style. So they're thinking, okay, if you're more like European-esque and there's a written order or a liturgy or you know exactly what to expect, that in their minds is what orderly means. And disorderly, strangely, is connected with volume or newer music or something like that. And that's just, it's neither of those things. So when you talk about orderly worship, don't say, well, I don't, one thing I don't like about modern worship is not orderly. What do you mean by that? Well, when we were in church, it was always in the bulletin, the order of service. Okay, like that is graciously not very logical of you. So orderly, or, it's not the point. The point is God doesn't want there to be confusion. Like where are we going? What's going on? Everyone's yakking at once, talking at once. So I don't care what your style is. If it's confusing because you got eight preachers going at the same time and everyone's trying to do their own thing, no. You pull together as one body, whatever the style is, whether you're in an African church or Latino church, some sort of North American, there needs to be direction. And it just seems sensible to us that since the elders of the church are responsible to oversee the church and to administrate the affairs of the church, that ultimately... It's on elder leadership to determine the course of direction in a worship service, as we would call it. So we, 
we're going to change elements, we're going to change form, we're going to experiment with different things, we have different lengths of time. Those are all internal considerations based upon many different factors. But what we don't want is for there to be confusion in our worship. And that's pretty much it. We don't want there to be confusion and for that to be manifested in selfishness. But we're very flexible on a lot of other things, on stylistic things, or on what these particular elements are within a worship service. So this is, this is uh, uh, kind of an important thing for us to just be, well, shall we say, a little more flexible than some of us may otherwise want to be. And uh, think about others in relationship to how we do things. When we think about others, by the way, in life in general, you, you, can't, you can't fall into the trap of trying to please or appease everyone because that's never going to happen. And if you think you're going to please and appease everyone by appealing to the broadest common denominator, that may not necessarily work either. But there's a consideration for others in worship. So I'm a preacher. I'm preaching for like 20-something years. And this row, not you, this row, a little bit of a row there, some guys at the back, you were like not born or babies when I started preaching. But I know that that there's a generation coming up behind me. So I got to always kind of adapt, right? I got to adapt my language. I can't, I'm preaching to my generation. You guys can just listen in, you bunch of runts. <laughs> I'm just going to preach to my generation. Like there has to be, we have to be able to adapt and flex. So language changes subtly, obviously, but language changes over time. Dre appropriate dress for a public occasion changes over time. And we need to take that into consideration. We can't just lock ourselves in to one particular way of doing things because that's the way it's always been. Nor can we fall into the trap of the, you know, the guilt by association fallacy, which people love to pull, where they pick an abuse that they saw in a particular church and assume that if your church does anything like that church does, you must be guilty of the same thing. So we, we have to exercise. There's, there's more flexibility in all of this than most of us probably think there is. And we need to take into consideration who God has put in front of us. All right. So now let's kind of circle back around to this whole idea of attitude and approach to God. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God an acceptable worship. So there's that optimism, that hope, that kind of solid knowledge that God is on the throne and he's in charge. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with what? With reverence and awe. With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. 
This is speaking of, this is speaking to Christians. So it's, it's just calling us to be careful and reverential. Careful and reverential doesn't mean shy and quiet. Thank you. Okay, this is for Jen. Reverential doesn't mean shy and quiet, but this Godward focus. He is God. I am not. I'm not going to mess this one up. I'm not going to make it about me. I'm not going to be looking around and watching people walk in and out and staring at the ceiling and checking my Facebook friends. I'm going to approach him with focus. And we're all a little bit ADD. Okay, if ADD was around when I was a kid, they would have given me like box loads of medication. We all, it's, it's hard for all of us to focus all of the time. But we need to fight that and we need to mature in those uh, areas of our minds and hearts and souls and learn to focus on God with reverence and awe. And then we have a Revelation 14.7 And it says there, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of the water. So again, we have this reverential approach. Fear God. Give him glory. We obviously need to be very, very careful when we judge other people's motives. I mean, you can judge someone's motives in worship and say, that person's not being reverential. In actual fact, they might be more reverential than you. Uh, we need to be careful not looking to someone and saying, hey, they're, they're not giving God glory, they're receiving glory for themselves. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. We need to be, always be very careful about judging motives. At the same time, we need to pray for a spirit of discernment. And if there's someone who is, appears to be trying to, they're a glory hog, as we call them, or they're not being reverential, or they are distracting, it's very appropriate for that person to have, you know, to have a conversation with a person like that. And you're free to do that, you know, in a worship service. If uh, someone's doing that, or your children are doing it, you need to teach them that this is a really important thing. We're, at, we're, we're doing now what we're designed to do for all of eternity. And so there's, we need to be gracious because we have to learn this stuff. Again, we don't, just, we don't just have to learn the Bible, we have to learn how to worship. And then we have to continue to be learning how to worship all the days of our lives. But these are some of the prerequisites for worship. Separation from impurity. A hopefulness that all the world will or should worship. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Obedience in worship. The sacrifice of our living bodies in worship. Orderly worship to avoid confusion. And worship with reverence and awe before God. Absolutely important for us. And then, before we get into our definitions and whatnot, I want to look at a couple passages that just talk about um, warnings. We've touched on some of these already. But a couple warnings. Uh, Exodus 34... 14. This one relates to idolatry in worship. 
It's always difficult to maybe understand idolatry because under the Old Covenant, it, was, it tended to be more obvious. Okay, this guy's got a carved idol on his mantle and he's bowing down to it. That's pretty obvious. Nobody does that that I know of. I mean, some other religions do. But I've never walked into a Christian's home. Oh, gotcha. They're bowing down to a wooden <laughs> polar bear or something. Um, but, so we've got to kind of translate it into our own contemporary idols. But Exodus 34, 14, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. So don't worship any other god. That is repeated. You can jot down 1 Kings 22.53. So I, in worship, we can't have any idols. So I think this is rightly why we do react to some brands of Christianity that worship statues or icons. You know what I'm talking about. Or things like that. Now they may say, oh, we don't worship them, we just reverence them, or they got a whole complicated, just, just don't put them there. People do worship them. I wasn't born yesterday. I've been to some of those masses. And then Deuteronomy 12, 4. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. What way? Images of gods, high places. So we don't want to bring elements of paganism into our worship. We need to be careful about that, that our worship doesn't become polluted. All right. I don't think that's a huge problem in our church, but something to be, or our tradition, but it's something to think about because we may be coming out of other traditions. Or physical objects are things we worship. I mean, people in our traditions can easily start to worship uh, a building, um, a particular pastor, a particular worship leader, a money, money whatever it might be in a worship service, right? So don't get too, hold all those things loosely. I, I, I don't want to tell too many stories, but you know, I've been around long enough to remember times when people were in church, particular church or churches I was in were really struggling with the fact we're changing the carpet. You know, my forefathers stood on this carpet they're dead now. Why are we removing the carpet? Stuff like that. Like, who cares? Let's just not get too stained glass windows, right? By the way, it's probably not a good idea to ever put labels on objects in the church in memory to people. Probably not a good idea. Put it on a plaque. The plaque can disappear when you want it to. But don't put labels on pianos or chairs or in memory to in your hymn books or that kind of stuff. I even heard someplace, I don't know if it's provincial law or federal law, that if something is labeled, it should never actually be removed. It should be there in perpetuity. I think there might be a law in the books to that effect. But 
that aside, it's just not a good idea. Because then people, well, that's a special object, right? That's, that was dedicated to the memory of my grandfather. Why? Like, how's that helping you? How's it helping you? It might hinder you, but how's it helping you? Just probably not a good idea. Generally speaking, more broadly, I'm not a huge proponent. If you've done this fine, don't come up and have a conversation with me after, okay? <laughs> I'm not a huge proponent in dedicating anything to anyone's memory. Trees, buildings, not a huge proponent of that. Because then it, it can become something more important in your mind than it needs to be. So here's what I, I was, I was going to do a little evaluation, but I think we're, we're out of time. But I, I wanted to, um, uh, I want to just touch quickly on our, I want you to understand our worship philosophy here at Harvest, and I want you to kind of be looking for it. So I asked Sarah just to, um, do you remember I taught you the one, one to five? You guys all remember that? So we develop a corporate worship service. This is the songs and the elements on uh, using a pattern like a one to five. I don't know if we have a fancy name for it. It's called like the one to five. I don't know. Um, but the five points of worship, I don't know. But um, the idea is, is early in the service, we want to be calling you to worship because we know you're distracted. So a couple songs that fall into that category would be Thousand Tongues or Open Up the Heavens. So those would be songs that we would use generally at the beginning of a service, not later on in the service, to, to, to call you into a place of worship. And then... By the time we get to three, what we're doing is the music is a testimonial kind of experience. So this is Amazing Grace, or we did Resurrecting on Sunday. So those are songs that really are more of a testimony between each other. And so a bridge to get you from calling people into worship to testifying would be like a hybrid, like uh, oh, oh, Come to the Altar or Open Up Our Eyes, Lord. So we're trying to move you out of your distraction into a place where you're focused on the Lord. And ultimately where we want to get you is to a five, where you're just describing worth of the Lord. There's no eyes, there's no use. It's not about us anymore. It's all about the Lord. And bridging songs to get us from testifying to God's grace or testifying to the resurrection life that we have would be uh, songs like, What a Beautiful Name or Great Are You, Lord. So we're starting to focus people in that direction. We're talking about how awesome God is. What a beautiful name. Or together we're saying, how great are you, Lord? But where we want to ultimately get you in a worship service, by God's grace, is to a place where you're kind of like John, looking in that, through that heavenly portal into the presence of God, and you're not thinking about anything but him. So songs that would be like that would be, just let me finish. Songs that would be like that would be worthy, worthy. So worthy, worthy, or there is none like you. Those are some songs that would kind of take us to a place where we're just really focusing in on God and ascribing great glory and honor to him. Okay. And as you're saying, like, our minds are, in other words, we're, it's just total focus on God. Yes. So it's almost like we're isolated with him. Yes, we call it pure ascription. So look for that in worship. So we're trying to, we're, we can't take you there. But as worship leaders, 
we're creating structures to point you there. But you have to engage. I mean, you can still be back disoriented when we get to five and everyone else is focused in. But we want to we arrange our order of worship, not just along themes. So in the old days, when you looked at some of the music, the, the, the theme of the sermon would be weaved into several of the songs. Yeah, good luck finding songs when you're talking about sexual impurity or parenting or how to handle your finances. Like there's, they don't write songs about that stuff. So it's, it's, it's a different kind of, a different philosophy of worship where we're, the theme of the, the song and the sermon is not, not important. It's God's presence being acknowledged that's important to us as it is in the Bible. So we want to kind of take you there. And then the song, song or an element, and by the way, any of these could also be communion or something like that. Like communion is often, often makes for a good number three because it's focusing on the Lord, but it's also testifying to God's goodness in our own lives. And then the, we have like a celebratory song um, at the end. Sometimes these are called spirit songs. So some, some would include like, I love you, Lord, or Jesus' name above all names, or worthy is the lamb, or Lord, you have my heart, or holy and anointed one. Those are the kind of songs that go really well after the word of God is declared because you're communing with the Lord. Kind of like a, uh, 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 we call them spirit songs for lack of a better term. All right, well, we are a little over time. So I actually thought we might end up early, to end up early tonight, but I hope this has been a good conversation. Thank you for coming. I hope that you've been blessed as we've talked about the church and your place in the church and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and Christian worship. And let's just kind of, bring all those together and together worship the Lord uh, in spirit and in truth as he's called us to. So be blessed. Have a great evening.